Stuff Podcasts. A warning, this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions that could be hard for some people to hear, so please take care when you're listening. There's like a, I don't know, there's a way that we relate as Wahine Māori especially, but just as Indigenous women in general, that you don't necessarily get with others. And it's not like anything special is happening, there's just like an understanding at a base level that things don't have to be explained or translated or... I don't know, you just sort of feel it. Queenie, queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, queenie, don't drop the ball. Down come baby, cradling on. Welcome to Tell Me About It, the podcast where we are always finding new things to be guilty about. I'm Kirsty Johnston. I'm Noelle McCarthy. And I'm Michelle Duff. So why why are we feeling guilty this week? I mean, I have obviously at any given time many, many things I can feel guilty about growing up Catholic. But what specifically are we feeling guilty about this week, Kirsty? Well, I mean, yeah, I'm the same. I'm pretty much always guilty. But specifically, we're talking about women's mags. This could be one of these things, once again, where something we really like turns out to be really problematic. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I don't want to feel guilty about this. I love women's mags. Like, surely there's no problem. Why should I feel guilty? I, I love them that, up at the airport. That you don't feel guilty about this. I, I, I feel like you're my role model in this regard with having no guilt, Michelle. I mean, I like them, but it feels like a reflex to me. You know, if I pick one up, if I'm at the doctor's or if I'm at the dentist's or something and I pick up a dog-eared old woman's magazine, I feel guilty. Like, I feel like, oh, I should be reading something else. You're like, you should be just flagellating yourself with The Economist. <laughs> I actually brought The Spectator once what? at an airport. I didn't know what it was and I started reading it <laughs> on the plane. I was like, oh, my gosh. Well, to be fair, you should be ashamed of that. What did you think it was? I thought it was maybe something like The Economist. Like, I was like, I'm going to learn, or like The New Scientist or something. I was like, I'm going to learn facts about things, you know? And then, no, it was just like some really extremely right-wing reckons. (laughs) And all the the cartoons on the front of sort of elder, aged white statesmen (laughs) didn't give you a clue. Um, Okay, so we're talking about women's magazines today. And this is one we've been wanting to talk about for ages, isn't it? Because it's such rich territory because there is a kind of an inherently sexist view of these sorts of magazines. And by these sorts of magazines, I guess we mean, you know, magazines that look at the home, at food, at clothes, at beauty, all these things. So basically women's lives, right? Yeah, that's right. And even though these magazines are a very big industry now, you know, like they make a lot of money, it still feels, doesn't it, like there's a certain sort of frivolousness associated with them that you don't get around The Economist or The Spectator or all those ones that we've been talking about. I mean, to be fair, they don't help themselves by like constantly claiming that Jennifer Aniston's pregnant when she's not And then the next week they're claiming it again or like pushing the idea that everyone should be twig thin or drinking grapefruit juice or whatever. Poor Jennifer Aniston. She's constantly fodder for that sort of thing. But I guess you're talking about gossip magazines, Kirsty. And I think what we're going to talk about this week is magazines that primarily focus on women, you know, like 
the ones that interview women and have food pages and books pages. But you're right. I think over the years, they have been reflecting a lot of those different preoccupations, like with diets and stuff and trends around body image and and all of that sort of thing and sex. Yeah, I guess I just kind of think it's sexist to totally dismiss them. Like my grandma, Audrey Gordon, who's now 95, used to be a journo at the New Zealand Women's Weekly and she actually won Reporter of the Year in 1984 uh, for stories about relationship property rights and IVF babies, which were like super important. What an amazing woman. What did you say her name was? Audrey Gordon. Yeah. Tell us about her, Michelle. I mean... Is this surprising that this is your grandmother? Is she the template for the journalist that you've become? She is an absolute legend. I I can't believe, yeah, I totally have modelled myself on her, to be quite honest. And often when I think about how people sort of discount, you know, women's news or like the lifestyle pages, I often think about her and the work that she did and how important that was to women's lives, especially in those days when you used to sit, you know, there with a cup of tea wherever you lived in the country and that was like a connection. Yeah. And it's not just, I mean, that's amazing. Firstly, your grandmother is a legend, but it's still happening now, I guess. Like, I think those magazines growing up for me were important to my generation, but I guess maybe it was different in Ireland. I don't know. What was it like here, Kirsty? Oh, it was so important. I feel like Cosmopolitan was probably the most important magazine you could read as like a teenage girl. It was pretty much like a <laughs> Bible of how to be a woman. And like, oh, maybe like Girlfriend Magazine and Dolly and Cream. I still have a poster of Silverchair from Dolly Magazine. Silverchair. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. I love it. <laughs> Can I just um, mention here also how embarrassment? What's uh, that, Michelle? Kirsty, do you remember that? What? Hang on, wait. No, do you not know what how embarrassment is? I have never heard of how embarrassment in my whole life. I love it as a title. I'm trying to imagine <laughs> what it could have been. I'm oh guessing okay, there was so a revealing like, element to it. It's just like girls would write in about like an embarrassing experience they had like I feel like my favorite one of all time was this girl she's like yeah so I went to the beach um with my dad and I was in my bikini and like he noticed this white string on my leg and tried to pull it off and oh my god it was my tampon (laughs) absolute classic so people would just write in and talk about the terribly embarrassing mortifying things that happened to them Yeah, absolutely. Some of the time you were like, surely not, you know, but other times, you know, you could identify maybe not so much with that particular tampon story, but, you know, there was nowhere else you could read about, you know, tampons and sex and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. And it's always there, but for the grace of God, I reckon, with the tampon string stories. And that's a really good point, I think, Michelle. Like, that's where I learned about sex and about sort of not just like the biological stuff, but, you know, all the bits in between. I think the first time I ever saw the word foreplay was in a Just 17 magazine. I mean, it was either that or you'd have to learn about it from like a Barbara Taylor Bradford novel at lunchtime, <laughs> like reading it on <laughs> Did you have and the, the Barbara Taylor Bradford's going, Kirsty? Was either that or what was the, what's the sexy Scottish one? Outlander. Uh, oh, my art teacher told us to read Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. Have you heard Flowers that? in the Earth? That's reasonably highbrow, I think, the Ken Follett one, isn't it? I mean, yes, I read Flowers of the Attic, of course I did, but that was kind of, 
you know, that's a bit twisted as well, wasn't it? Anyway. But I think we can agree that it's pretty good that those magazines were a place where you could go and you could learn a bit more about the ins and outs of sex, especially if you couldn't learn it anywhere else, like if you weren't getting that information. I guess, yeah, it was it was good, but it was also, I mean, deeply problematic. So you're right, I guess that that is an issue. I mean, a lot of the times it was, you know, the sales section of Cosmo or whatever was sort of how to give a blowjob or, you know, what to do with your when your boyfriend's cheating on you or everyone's having anal, here's how you do it, Ooh, you know. Whoa! <laughs> That's quite intense, isn't it? All of that, like, kind of... Don't worry about yourself and never mind the clitoris, um, but here's how to, you know, keep a man happy. I mean, all of that problematic stuff is even before you start looking at kind of the broader issues of those mags, right? Like the whiteness and skinniness of it all. I mean, like for years they were basically saying, oh, but, you know, we've got Naomi Campbell, um, so we're good on the representation front. Yeah, you've got one black model. Yeah, there's a um, there's a feminist author, Chamamanda Adichie, I don't know if you guys have read any of her uh, books, but there's one called Americana where the main character, who's a Nigerian woman, opens a woman's mag to sort of flick through and show her white boyfriend all the, like, the lack of women of colour in the pages. You know, there's nowhere that tells her how to do her hair or what kind of foundation or lipstick, you know, might work for her. Mm, There's no representation. I guess I never thought of that, you know, as a 17-year-old or even older reading Vogue or reading Cosmopolitan, you know, all those things we were saying we learned about, about clothes and makeup. That's all for white women. I remember Iman, you know, like the the other black supermodel being interviewed (laughs) and talking about like turning up to shoots, big shoots for big magazines, you know, big deal stuff. And there just being nobody there who could do her makeup, you know, and there wasn't even she I mean, she brought out a range of makeup, I think, in the end, because she'd just gotten so good at doing it herself because the stylist would just be like, oh, well, sorry, nah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel like that, you know, that's the shame and what's happened to these magazines. Hey, so, so many of them ended up closing, kind of not just because of COVID, but since the internet. And I do feel like it was only just when they had really begun to embrace, you know, plus-size models or Rihanna with her Venti makeup line changing, you know, what was available in there. And, like, Teen Vogue, just before it closed, was writing some of the best political analysis around. And yet, you know, just as they did start to become better, they were almost completely decimated. Yeah, that was fantastic, eh, the Teen Vogue. It was like proving that women actually, we are interested in a range of stuff, including current events, believe it or Surprise. not. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> but you're right about the contraction, isn't it? I mean, that happened here too. Yeah, so we had a lot of magazines all close at the same time when Bauer Media uh, decided to shut them down. But So we have had a lot of them that have since reopened, which is uh, kind of a different story. But back in 2020, we, we had Woman Magazine, which, uh, yeah, was kind of sprung out of all of those. And one of the things I was super excited about, apart from losing all the other titles, was that Woman Magazine had a uh, Sienna Yates was appointed as the deputy editor. And why did you think, I know Sienna's work and and she's going to be um, on the show today, but why did you think that was particularly cool at the time, Michelle? Well, just sort of coming back to what Kirsty was saying about the l- lack of representation, I 
you know, Sienna's is a great journalist and she'd been at the Herald writing all this really insightful stuff about body image and sexism and racism and that kind of thing. So I was thinking or hoping that she'd bring sort of a new way of looking at things. Yeah. And I mean, she did that immediately, right? I'm actually looking through their Instagram feed right now, women's feed. Not that I wasn't, you know, listening to you guys. Um, you can see like right <laughs> back when they first launched. Do you just sit there with your Instagram open while we're talking, just out of interest? Yeah, she's been answering texts this entire fully time. Fully on social media. I literally can't tweeting. help myself. I'm sorry. But I just really, yeah, I was looking through their pictures. And I mean, it does still look very woman's mag, right? It's very glossy. Everyone has their makeup done nicely. It's all very kind of empowering. But you can see right back at the launch, the very first images they started posting, like the first one is like this beautiful Māori woman with this mokokoai. She's not stick thin. She looks like an everyday woman. There's like a firefighter with, you know, a, a short pixie cut. It just speaks to the fact that they deliberately wanted to do things differently. It's so interesting. So this is Sienna Yates, who was the deputy editor of Woman Magazine, and she's going to be talking to us about her experience working there under the editorship of former editor Cedo Kitchen. Thanks for having me. So we're just going to jump right into it. I guess the first thing to ask is, why did you take the role with Woman Magazine? It's a little bit different to what you were doing before. Yeah, it was also weirdly at a time where I'd basically vowed to not work for a year, <laughs> but uh Cedo came to me with with the offer and it was just a bit very cliched but it was just one of those things that was too hard to refuse because what she was doing and how she pitched it to me was literally just we're going to do a women's magazine that isn't a women's magazine you know like it's everything we had always hoped a women's magazine might someday be and then we're actually going to try to do it <laughs> which is wild and uh, she when she pitched it she did say like we want to get more brown voices, we want to get more young voices, more queer voices, Like we want to diversify. And that's like my whole thing. So couldn't really say no. That's awesome. So what was it like for you, I guess, stepping into that environment of women's mags, who, which, you know, you heard us talking before, like traditionally have been quite sort of white and I guess like a certain, like glossy, that kind of thing. What was that like for you going in there? Yeah, pretty weird, um, especially coming from, because I'd only ever been in news, like in newspapers first and then online news. And then Magazine Land is a really weird place, most of all because they've got a ton of budget that no one else has ever had. But there's just like, a, there was a certain vibe and because everyone was, mostly everyone there had come from Bauer with Cedo and... You know, they all knew each other, they all knew how to work together, and then I was just sort of there, like, when, on the outs, in pretty much every conceivable way. <laughs> but yeah, it, uh, it took some getting used to. Did they all dress really fancy, Sienna? Correct. Yep. <laughs> they all dress really nice, their makeup was done perfectly, everyone's just a bit glamorous, you know? And then I'm just sort of there in my shorts and t-shirt. <laughs> I'm just thinking about like, because I worked with you in the Herald newsroom, I think, right before you left. And I'm thinking about like, <laughs> what everyone looked like there, kind of just like hunched over their computers, typing and eating. And <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit grey, yeah. Just dropping dropping crumbs onto the keyboard, eh? So was that kind of your role, Sienna, to um, 
try and increase the representation of wahine Māori? Like, did you, was it deliberate? What happened there? Yeah, it, it was very deliberate on my part. <laughs> like, when I came on board, I basically was like, these are the stories that I want to focus on. And thankfully, Cedar was like, great, we'd love that. And so basically, I spent all of my time just talking to cool brown women that I wanted to make my friend. Was that nice for the interviewees as well? Like, you know, do you think there would have been interviewees who'd be used to being interviewed, but they might not be used to being interviewed by another wahine Māori or, you know, women of colour who might not have been interviewed by another woman of colour? 100%. And that started happening at the Herald as well, because that was the last proper job I had, not freelancing before woman. And there I started to push the agenda a little bit um the kind of general vibe is there's like a I don't know there's a way that we relate as Wahine Māori especially but just as Indigenous women in general that you don't necessarily get with others and it's not like anything special is happening there's just like an understanding at a base level that things don't have to be explained or translated or I don't know you just sort of feel it a little bit and especially if you fuck up a nongatanga at the start and you sort of build a some kind of relationship, I guess, right at the beginning. But there have been a good amount of times where people have said basically along the lines of, I wouldn't usually do this, but because it's you, I will. And I think it's just like a trust thing. A lot of Māori people especially, and Māori women especially, just don't trust the media. Yeah, the media hasn't really served uh, Māori well and Māori women. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes and that kind of thing. And I think before you started at Woman, I, I think you made a tangible difference to the look and feel of that magazine. Did you? What kind of feedback did you get from from other uh, Wahimari or or from anyone about what you were doing? Uh, yeah, it was it was kind of wild because a lot of the people that I talked to, like I think Emma Espiner was one of the early ones who I sort of forced to become my friend. She didn't really have a choice. So <laughs> things like. She would be there and Stacey, who I have been friends with for a long time, Stacey Morrison. And so they'd always be sort of passing on feedback that they've heard about just how nice it was for people to see themselves reflected in a glossy mag for the first time, maybe ever. Especially because I think like you guys were saying earlier, it was magazines, glossy mags would just have like the one black model or the one black celebrity and that would be it. But to have actual Māori women telling Māori stories in a Māori way. I don't think it's been done before. And that cover, that Matariki cover, that was so special. Yeah, that we borrowed Korowai and different, um, what would you say, uh, like accessories, I guess. So Soldiers Road is the portrait studio that did the shoots for that particular issue. And that's what they do. They have all the costuming and stuff there for people to dress up in however they want so you can do like a mix of colonial mix of Māori or you can just go one way or the other and just recreate a nice colonial portrait situation. Can you talk us through the the concept of that cover because you know it's this incredible group of wahine you know Annika Moa, Stacey, Patricia Grace, Becky Manuatu, Karina and Casey and what was the idea? Who came up with the idea to do it? Uh, so, yeah, full credit to CEDO. It was very much a CEDO-driven 
situation. And this is Cedo Kitchen, who was the editor and also the, the person who started up Woman and hired you as the deputy editor. Correct. She had a lot of amazing ideas and sort of, I guess, she had the idea and then she we sort of workshopped how it was going to look and who was going to be involved in the kind of topics we were going to focus on. And so we sort of made a long list of women that we wanted to feature and had to narrow that down a bit because people had varying schedules and the photo shoots were fairly intense. Um, and then, yeah, there were, a lot, I think a lot of the women that we ended up having were, again, people that I desperately wanted to be friends with. So <laughs> that worked out well for me. Did it do well, Sienna? Like, was it, a, you know, was it a milestone for the magazine? Yeah, I think it definitely was. I don't know that it financially did well because I wasn't across that side of things at all but I feel like maybe it was one of those things that did really well online and like sort of went a bit viral on Instagram especially in Maori circles but whether that translated into sales I'm not sure <laughs> I hope so but also the country we live in I don't have that much faith to be honest <laughs> One thing I really appreciated about your story, Sienna, was that, you know, for better or for worse, we get used to a certain tone in women's magazines. You know, like with the interviews, you might get more women profiled, but it's always positive and, you know, everything's super upbeat. And I, I had always felt like that there was a, maybe a lack of depth in the past. And in your stories, God, you know, you really plumb all these different emotions, you know, like it would go up and down on the chart of highs and lows. Was that something you were really consciously doing, you know, when you were deciding which bit of your interviews to um, put into the profiles? Honestly, not really. <laughs> what happened was because... You didn't have some master plan to tag <laughs> on our heartstrings? If only. No, no. The trouble was <laughs> when women came along, I was not in a great place in a mental health-wise, you know, and so it just sort of happened that that kind of translated into all of my chats. All my chats sort of became little mini therapy sessions, which was sometimes a bit uncomfortable. Like there were times when people were just, we were just crying with each other. And people were always like, oh, I didn't expect to be crying today. So yeah, me neither. But this is sort of the mindset I'm in at the minute. So welcome. We'll do some workshopping. But yeah, the thing also is Indigenous women and Māori women, I think for some reason now, especially, we're going through it. And I think maybe it's to do with COVID and the whole Black Lives Matter situation. And that there is like an online, at least, reclamation movement, I guess. And so there's a lot of us struggling at the minute with like reclaiming the language and reclaiming our Māori tongue in general, trying to trace our whakapapa, you know, just sort of reconnecting in a way which maybe we haven't been doing so openly until now. So basically what I'm saying is those journeys are super emotional and super hard and sometimes you just have to cry about it with someone who gets it. And that's how a lot of my stories ended up going. I feel really privileged that you that you let the readers into some of that. Yeah. I guess I didn't think about that at all. <laughs> a lot of the things I did were quite selfish, I'll be honest. <laughs> those are <laughs> those are the stories that I wanted to tell because it's stuff that I'm going through as well. And 
I know that one of the biggest things that have helped me in the last couple of years is knowing that I'm not in it alone. And so if somebody can read that and also be like, oh, Stacey Morrison also struggles or, oh, this person also struggles, you know, and with the same things in the same ways, that's got to help somebody somewhere, hopefully. Can I just ask, you know, ultimately, do you think women was like the best forum for that? Or do you think it, like if you were to go back, for example, and we'll ask why you left in a minute, do you think why, um, do you think that like Māori media, you know, would be a better place for those? Or do you think woman was a good place to tell those stories? I think woman was a great place to tell those stories just because we had a certain amount of reach, which was quite good, especially hate that it's true, but, you know, star power sells magazines. And so we had access to a lot of celebrities and we had the budget to bring people on board in that, in that glossy kind of a way that people want to look at you know as opposed to just the thousandth article you've seen pop up on Facebook but was it the best place to put it no <laughs> ideally it would be Māori owned Māori run full Māori staff you know that's the ultimate dream I think that's really interesting what you're saying because you know you're sort of touching on what we've been talking about the the soft power of the, these magazines and the sort of aspirational aspect but you're also hinting that you know it's an evolution like that can come you know you look at Nuku women being uh you know being uh, uh, on the long list for the Occam awards you know and the shortlist will be out soon and you know hopefully it'll be there as well there is an audience and there is of course there's a market and you know your part you've been part of showing that right yeah, and this is the thing. Kiani, who does Nuku, is literally one of my idols. <laughs> I think she's <laughs> so amazing. And she was one of those interviews where we cried together on her couch, you know. For if she had the reach and the attention that she deserved, Nuku would be an absolute, it would be massive, you know. And it's like, it's huge within Māori circles, especially. And I'm hoping it's huge in the country in general. I don't know. But yeah, there is, there's something about a magazine, especially run by somebody like Cito, who has so many years of know-how behind her, that just, yeah, gets out there a bit different. But I do hope that Nuku's on its way to that because Christ, it deserves it. Mm, it feels like it. Yeah. What about your journey? Like where, because you don't work there anymore. So I think, Kirsty, you were saying you wanted to know why Sienna left. Yeah. So I have been thinking for quite some time now about studying the real full-time full immersion, which is hard because you can't have a job at all because it's nine to three, Monday to Friday for the whole year. And it's the mental space you have to give it as well. You just can't work on the side, I don't think. I don't think I can anyway. So I'd been thinking about that for a long time. And then in the last couple of years, I've had friends go through Takiura and do the full immersion course there. And it finally just got to a point where I was like, this is something I need to do now while I can, you know, like while I don't have a mortgage or kids or anything to worry about and can just take a year off. So that's pretty much why I left, which I wasn't going to leave until now-ish, this February, March, when my course starts. Um, 
but then I don't know if this is a bit of a downer, but <laughs> my koro passed away uh, in July. And so then after that, I just sort of couldn't really see the point in working anymore. Mm. <laughs> Nothing really made a lot of sense. So I just quit a bit before I planned to, really. Is that a downer? Yeah, no, that makes well, totally very sense. sad, but yeah. thank you for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been hanging out in Tupuke since yep. then. Just hanging out, living with my nana. So she's not alone and I'm not paying rent, which is great. Um, yeah, but I've been freelancing a little bit here and there, which is nice, especially because people still seem to want the same kind of stuff that I was doing at Woman. So it's sort of just been able to continue on, which is really nice. And that was Sienna Yates talking about her time working at Woman magazine. I loved hearing from Sienna. What did um, what were your takeaways from that? What did you think, Kirsty? Oh, just a lot of crying and I was very there for it because as you might have heard, Sienna and I we're at the Herald at similar times and it's always nice to just feel validated, you know. Um, and then I also, I could have, I could definitely, I, she actually lives in Tipuki, which isn't far from me. So I might hit her up and go have a wine because I just want to hear about the outfits at the magazine. And I'm not going to feel guilty about that <laughs> because we've discussed that we're allowed to not feel guilty about clothing. That's right. Guilt is a totally useless emotion. Michelle, but what were you thinking? Because, I mean, you know, having that experience that your grandmother had at, um, you know, in, in her journalism career, what was it like hearing what it's like in the 21st century from Sienna? Uh, so the New Zealand Women's Weekly had a sort of commemorative edition, uh, I think 100 years or something, come out a few years ago. And there was a picture of the newsroom when my grandma was there and June Wishart was the editor then. And it's almost completely Pākehā woman. And just listening to Sina and hearing her say how, and I know it's been, you know, hard for her over the years working in mainstream newsrooms and not really feeling represented either in the newsroom or in the pages of the newspaper and then being able to go somewhere and make a really uh, definitive change, you know, it sounds like Sita was right behind there. And she, you know, I, I picked up Woman and, you know, it's actually almost not shocking, but you just seeing brown women in the pages of that magazine like they are in everyday life is just, it's, you know, it's really, I can see why it's emotional. And, yeah, I think it's wonderful. Did I eat all your chocolate brownie, Michelle? Um, I don't know if you guys caught up with it, listeners, but during our record just then, Michelle's child decided to make a guest appearance. He was really quiet, though. You had to be listening he, out for him. You had to know his sounds to know he was there. I love that. Yeah, he. there's sort of like a half spat out chocolate brownie um, on a plate next to me. So I might, and half a Cheerio. So I might leave that and go and find something else. Crack into it. The glamour of podcasting. Okay, that's us. And we will see you next week. Matewa. Tell Me About It is made for stuff by Bird of Paradise Productions. It was produced by me, Noelle McCarthy, and written by me, Kirsty Johnston, and Michelle Duff. 
Our script supervisor is Eugene Bingham and thanks to Janine Fenwick and Eugene for editorial oversight. Mixed by Mark Chesterman. And our theme tune is Queenie Queenie by Tammy Nielsen, our queen. You can like the podcast and leave a review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me About It is made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Queenie, Queenie, don't drop the ball. Down come baby cradling.